Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, The Unexpected King, which was taught to help us celebrate Advent in 2022. In this series, we consider several unexpected characteristics of the coming King, as seen in Zechariah 9.9. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. Good morning. Thank you for being here today. I'm I'm Tony, one of the elders here, and it's my job this morning to, to present the word, and we're going to pray first and, and jump right in. Father God, if I don't get anything else right this week, help me to get the next 35 minutes right. Lord, we're talking about you being our king, our savior. We're talking about the gospel, nothing could be more simple and more profound. Would you speak in and through me? And would you speak in and through the teachers upstairs to our children, Father? Would you be with them? Would you open the hearts and the, and the eyes and the ears of our children? Would you, would you uh, help them to take something away today that changes their lives and helps them to become the men and women of Christ that you would have them be? Father, we, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Out, damn spot, out, I say. So goes one of the great lines in Macbeth, Shakespeare's uh, tragic tale of shame and guilt. In the first act, Lady Macbeth and her husband murder the king. Then as the play progresses, there both wrapped with guilt, and Lady Macbeth finally descends into madness. Then in the last act, just before she commits suicide, Lady Macbeth appears in what is called the sleepwalking scene. She's tormented by mental anguish. She's insensible to her surroundings, and she cries out, out, damn spot, out, I say. She's overheard by a doctor who's attending her. She's not even aware he's there. And she confesses, who would have thought the old man had so much blood in him? Will these hands never be clean? Here's the smell of blood still. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. Oh, oh, oh. And the doctor takes pity and he says, what a sigh is there. This disease is beyond my practice. The shame and guilt of sin, beyond the practice of a 17th century doctor of Scotland, and beyond the practice of 21st century doctors still. No medicine in the world can cure the problem of guilt and shame. We're in the second week of Advent, and we're talking during these four Sundays before Christmas about some of the unexpected aspects of Jesus. Last week, Brett talked about Jesus is our righteousness. Next week, Bobby will discuss Christ's humility and, and gentleness. I picked Jesus our Savior because I thought that would be the easiest of all the other topics. <clears throat> Theologians have been writing about this for 2,000 years, right? I mean, it ought to be easy to find something to say. But the problem is theologians have been talking about this for 2,000 years, and there's not really much left to be said. If you've been a Christian for 
longer than a minute, you already know the gospel, and that's the most important thing. And even if you sleep during the sermons here on Sunday, you've driven past a couple of dozen signs in your life that say, Jesus saves. So as I prepared this week, I discovered that coming up with anything mildly original or entertaining was beyond my capacity. Still, you were good enough to show up this morning, so I'm going to do my best to, to just try and get at how Lady Macbeth could have found relief from her guilt and shame, and how you and I can find relief from our guilt and shame as well. Our text for this Advent season is Zechariah 9.9. So hear now the word of our living, reigning, and saving God. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout, O daughter Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah pro prophesied during the very end of Israel's exile as the people were re returning back to uh, Israel. Um, he his, his prophecies mostly focused on calling people back to God and encouraging them to rebuild the temple and assuring them that a righteous king from David's line would, uh, would save Israel from all of her enemies and, and eventually rule the world. In our text today, Zechariah tells us the people shout for joy because the promised Savior will come in righteousness and salvation. Now, I don't know what your idea of salvation is. How do you picture salvation? Is it a, a get-out-of-hell-free card? Uh, it's a series of blessings like peace and purpose and, and meaning, or, or is it things you look forward to, like uh, treasure in heaven or an end to suffering or righteous standing before God? A more modern Jewish prophet from the middle of the 20th century was a pop culture icon named Groucho Marx. And Groucho said, I intend to live forever or die trying. <laughs> for Groucho, and I suspect for a lot of us, our biggest fear and the thing we think we most need to be saved from is death. What does salvation mean to you? What do you need to be saved from? Well, I'll jump 500 years into the future after Zechariah, and we find one of the greatest Christmas stories in the Bible in Matthew chapter 1. We read it every Christmas. And there, Joseph expresses great shame. In fact, it says, when he finds out Mary is pregnant, though they had not been together, he intended to quietly put her away. But an angel appears to Joseph and tells him not to reject Mary. Instead, the angel says, take her home and make her your wife. I don't know about you, but I've always thought it interesting that the angel really wants to give strict instructions about what Joseph is to name the baby. You'd think that if you're going to be the stand-in father for the Son of God, the angel would give a little more important advice than what you should name him. Maybe something like which school you should send him to, or how you should treat him, or, or even something simple like, hey, your wife is bearing the, the Son of God. Don't let him play in the street. But it's nothing like that. An angel moves heaven to earth in order to give just one piece of advice to these 
first-time parents, and it's this. Here's what you're to name them. Names were important back then. Today, not always so much. Sometimes people today name their kids after their favorite flower, like poppy, or their favorite tree, like aster, or some astronomical observation, like moonbeam. <laughs> but the Bible makes much of people's names. In Genesis 17, God himself changes Abram's name to Abraham, which means father of many nations. Abraham might have thought it ironic given he was old and childless. Names are important to Jesus as well. He, he renames Simon and calls him uh, Peter. He changes Saul's name to Paul. And so the angel comes to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and tells us these first-time parents all the things you need to know about the Christ child. Of all the things you need to know, the most important thing is what you should name him. The angel is telling Joseph and Mary his name is how they are to think of him, how they're to talk about him, and what they and everyone else is to expect from him. His name is his identity. So in Matthew 1, verse 21, we read, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. In the Jewish Bible, it's Yeshua, and most commentators agree it means the Lord saves, or the Lord is salvation. Yeshua was the Aramaic, Aramaic transliteration when it was translated to Greek and then Latin, and that's why uh, our Ang Anglicized Bibles write it as Jesus. The Lord is salvation. We've seen a similar name in the Bible because Jesus shares a common Hebrew root with Joshua. And just like Joshua in the Old Testament, leading the people out of the desert into the promised land, Jesus leads his people out of sin and into the presence of God. The Lord is salvation. And so here's the solution to Lady Macbeth's sin and shame and guilt and, and to ours. In the first sermon ever preached after the resurrection, Peter makes it clear in Acts 4.12 where he says this, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Even God's own religion doesn't cleanse us from our sin, according to Hebrews 10. In chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, we read, The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have have felt guilty for their sins. Then in verses 3 and 4, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Here Hebrews tells us that the law can't solve the problem of our sin. It can only remind us of our sin. The, priest, uh, the priests of Israel were constantly sacrificing animals for sin. Animals can't pay for your sin or mine, not, not permanently. In Leviticus 16, we hear about this once-a-year ordinance called the Day of Atonement. The high priest was to make atonement for the people of Israel by confessing their sins over a scapegoat and then releasing the scapegoat into the, into the wilderness. And there, there were sacrifices as well. 
And Leviticus 16.30 says, once that's done, then before the Lord, Israel will be clean from all their sins. But it has to be done every year. They weren't permanently cleansed from sin. They had to do it over and over and over again. The purpose was to remind the people of their sin. The whole religious system of laws and sacrifices were only a, a shadow of the coming reality. That's how Hebrews 10 verse 1 puts it. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And in verse 4, Hebrews says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Bulls and goats are not salvation. Jesus, the Lord, is salvation. That's verses 5, uh, verses, uh, five through 7 of Hebrews 10. It's not on your screen, but here's what verses uh, 5 through 7 tell us. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And then in verse 10, the writer of Hebrews says, And by that will we have been made holy, through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Jesus the Lord is salvation. He's the true and willing sacrifice who steps forward amidst all the bloodshed in the temple and says, here I am. He says the time for shadows is, is at an end. The reality is here. And now verse 10, and by, the, by that will... We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That phrase, once for all, that's our only hope. That's the only medicine that can truly and permanently cure the, the twin maladies of shame and guilt. And it's God's promise to you and me. And, and once you get that, it will rescue you from the deepest valley of suffering and deliver you to the absolute freedom of Christ's finished work. The Lord is salvation. Jesus, our scapegoat, died the death of every slanderer, every pornographer, every bully, every murderer, every thief, every adulterer, every terrorist, every sinner. He died their death. He died my death. But that's not the salvation the Jews of the first century were expecting, is it? They knew the Messiah would be born in the city of David, Bethlehem, but they didn't expect it to be a fluke. They expected the prophesied Messiah would be king, but not a laborer's son born in a cattle stall. They expected their savior to be celebrated. They did not expect those celebrations would be attended by mere agricultural workers and pagan astrologers, or that the religious elite would be excluded. They didn't expect them to grow up in Nazareth, to be born into the family of a carpenter, or to become a wandering preacher. They certainly didn't think he would pick as his most devout followers fishermen and tax collectors, zealots, and a formerly demon-possessed woman. No one, not even his followers, not one person, thought he'd criticized the super-pious Pharisees as hip hypocrites while describing a Roman centurion in Luke 7 as more faithful than all of Israel. 
The Samaritan woman in John 4 was surprised a Jewish man would show up at her well at midday. She was semi-scandalized to learn he was a rabbi. She was undone when he declared himself the promised Messiah. The paralytic, the blind man, the lepers, none of them expected Jesus would heal them. The man who believed but asked Jesus to help his unbelief in Mark 9 didn't fully expect Jesus would drive the demon from his son. The widow of Nain in Luke 7, attending the funeral of her dead boy, never expected, to Je never expected Jesus to raise her son back to life. The synagogue leader in Mark 6 never expected Jesus would, would raise his dead 12-year-old daughter. But Jesus tells the man, don't be afraid, just believe. And then we see him take the girl by the hand and say, little girl, get up. And she rises to the utter astonishment of everybody present. Over and over we see Jesus doing the unexpected thing in places no one expected the Messiah, King, Savior to be. The Lord is salvation. And we learn from both sides of that equation. We learn who Jesus is. He is salvation. But we also learn what salvation looks like. First, the Lord is salvation. That's his name. That's his nature. That's both his identity and his mission. The Lord is salvation. He comes down, down, down for you and for me. He descends from heaven to earth to the cross, and in the process, he shows us the very nature of God. He is a saving God. That's who he is. He's, a, he's our ransom. He's our rescuer. He's our true hero. In Jesus, we see, the, we see the infinite depth of deity, and there we find a love so overwhelming that the creator of all life pours his life out as a once-for-all bleeding sacrifice for us. From a throne to a manger, from king of the cosmos to a man of sorrow, his infinite riches are poured out so that we poor beggars can have life. The Lord's mission is salvation. That's why he's come. He's come to save his people from their sin. And while that's not the Savior the people were waiting for or the Savior they expected, that's the Savior they needed. It's the Savior Lady Macbeth needed. It's the Savior you and I need every day of our lives. The Christian writer Roy Lesson said this. He said, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent a, an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, God would have sent a scientist. If our greatest need had been money, God would have sent an economist. But since our greatest, greatest need was forgiveness, God sent us a savior. Imagine you owe a, a debt bigger than anything you could ever repay. Imagine you've you failed to pay your taxes for the last 10, 20 years. You, you had other needs, your family, your, your car, your health care, your home. At the, at the end of the month, you just never had enough left to pay the tax man, and the debt's piled up. Now it's more than $100,000, and you don't know how you're ever going to get it paid. It weighs on you constantly. You're miserable. Not an hour goes by, you don't think about it, worry about it. You know one day you'll be found out. The IRS will come after you, and they will take everything, your home, your family, all of it gone. What do you do? Your accountant tells you, call the IRS and explain the situation. 
negotiate, she says. Ask for more time, she says. Stretch things out. So you call the IRS and you start making excuses and you tell them about your financial problems and, and you, you explain why you've fallen behind and you start to negotiate and you just say, I just need a little more time. But then the IRS agent cuts in and he says, we have no record of any taxes you owe. Now you know he's made a mistake because you know the W-2s went in. You just couldn't pay the taxes. And you, so you say, you must have the forms, they'll show you. And the agent says, we have no record of any debt you owe. Thanks for calling. Have a wonderful day. And he hangs up. If you've trusted Jesus as your scapegoat, those are God's words to you today. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 25. I, even I... And he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. God, sends your, God says your sins and lawless acts, I remember no more. Have a wonderful day. That's God's word to you. He has no record of your wrongdoing. None. Your debts are canceled. You don't have to live in the shadows. You don't have to try to clean yourself up. You've been cleansed through the cross of Jesus Christ. And you have been cleansed once for all. So salvation is what Jesus does. But second, the name Jesus also tells us what salvation is. It's not just that the Lord is salvation. It's also that the Lord is salvation. What I'm trying to say is salvation isn't just something Jesus does. It's who he is. It's not just a thing. It's a person. The Lord is salvation. Jesus isn't a, a prince who rides along in a carriage distributing salvation like coins to gutter dwellers. Jesus is the prince who gets out of the carriage and joins us there in the gutter. He stoops down, he gets in the gutter with us, and he puts his arm around us. He lifts us up out of the gutter, and he takes us to his family home, and he makes us sons and daughters of his father, the king. So salvation isn't just us receiving a, a get-out-of-hell-free card or blessings like forgiveness and purpose. It's, it's not just future things like heavenly treasure or right standing before God. Salvation is about us receiving him, a person, the person of Jesus. The Lord himself is our redemption. You get all the heavenly stuff, but it's all in him. There are dozens of examples, but I've got just three up here. Ephesians 2, 6 and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And 2 Corinthians 1.20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Matthew 21 and Zechariah in today's text and all the other scriptures in the Bible that talk about our unexpected Savior, Messiah, King, tell us that salvation isn't a what. It's a who. It's a he. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus the Lord is salvation. 
Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed an eternal love for one another we can't even imagine. But he doesn't leave it to our imagination. Jesus comes into the world to show us what that love looks like. And we see that true love looks like a, a bloody sacrifice who pours his life out so, we can, so that we can be saved not just from God, but for God. That's maybe another way to think about it. Jesus does not come to, to save us from illness or loneliness or lack of purpose or material poverty. He comes to save us from, from our sin once and for all time. He comes to save us from the wrath we rightly deserve. That's his mission. But it's not just what Jesus saves you from. It's, it's also what he saves you for. And in saving us from our sin, he saves us for himself. And in him, we get purpose and love and eternal life thrown in. You know the story about the man in the field who finds a great treasure and sells everything he has to buy the field? So Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. It says this, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. And it's... And I've done this too. We, we read that as though that's us who found Jesus. But what if it's not that way? What if it's the other way around? What if it's Jesus who finds us? What if he says we're the treasure? What if it was him who gave everything he had for us? I don't know. We read it as though we're the ones who sacrifice anything at all for Christ. But every other parable from what I can tell in that section is about God finding his people the sower of the good seed in verse 37, the, the merchant of fine pearls in verses 45 and 46, or the fisherman who sorts the good fish from the, from the bad in verses 47 through 50. All the other parables there are about him identifying and rescuing his people. But for some reason, most of the sermons and writings I've seen about the man who found a great treasure is about us giving up everything for Christ. Jesus isn't lost. You and me, we're lost. And he gives up everything he has to find us, to lift us out of our lostness, and to possess us. Does reading the story that way give you hope? How do we apply this? Well, to be terribly honest, I, I kind of think application is beyond us. We're lost like the treasure in the field. We can take hope that Christ has found us and given up everything he's had to possess us, but it's Jesus, the Lord, is salvation. And he's given to us so that we might be saved. And because he has saved us, then we are invited to participate in his salvation, not just as passive witnesses of, of the love shared by Father, Son, and Spirit, but as full participants in that love. We're not invited to watch from the bleachers, but to join in as partners in the shared love of God. Your, your hope, your lasting hope, your, your only hope is knowing this. It, it finally, knowing the satisfaction your soul longs for is, is trusting Jesus Christ and recognizing Him as your life giving Savior. Will you allow Jesus to meet your ultimate need? What do you need this Advent season? What, what do you want? What do you really want for Christmas? Like the fictional but all too 
recognizable Lady Macbeth. Do you want to be saved from your stained and sinful wickedness? Do you want to be, the, be saved from the, the shame and guilt she could never escape by her own striving? Do you want the medicine no doctor then or since could possibly prescribe? Your greatest need is not something even as important as your, your health or your finances or your job or your family. He knows you need all those things. But you, what you really need is forgiveness from the Savior who is victorious over everything else you need. Once you know him, this, this unexpected saving king, then you can join David in singing from Psalm 13, verses 5 and 6. I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Turn to Jesus, the Lord who saves his people from their sins, and he'll lead you out of the miserable anguish of your shame and guilt and into the love you were made for. We're going to come to the Lord's table. And as we get ready to do so, I'd like to return for a second to that great prophet of pop culture, Groucho Marx. Groucho said he intended to live forever or die trying. Sadly, he passed away in 1977. And that's the way of existence, is it not? Our natural experience tells us life is difficult, then you die, right? On his deathbed, King David tells his son in 1 Kings 2.2, I'm going the way of all flesh, so be strong and act like a man. It's enough to make us believe Monty Python's line, for life is quite absurd, and death is the final word. That's the trajectory of this world. It's as old as Adam and the curse. It's, it's the just wages of sin. It's, it's life, then death. But in one of Jesus' most unexpected acts, he reverses the way of Adam. He turns everything we know about death and the grave on its head. He turns the world right side up the way it was supposed to be before the curse. He defeats everything we think we know about the natural order. And he moves from death to life. We started today in the, in the, in the first book of the New Testament in Matthew 1 where the angel tells Joseph what, what he's to name Jesus. But consider where his saving work ends. The great English poet Lord Byron said, all tragedies are finished by a death, all comedies by a marriage. And all too often our experience tells us life is a tragedy, does it not? But scripture tells us there's a different ending. In the final book of scripture in Revelation chapter 19, we're, we're told about a marriage and a, and a wedding feast. And those in Christ aren't just invited to attend, we're participants in the wedding itself. Christ turns our tragedy into amazing, brilliant, everlasting joy, where I'm sure there'll be plenty of comedy. It's an essential part of the gospel that Christ has entered his own world to remake it from the inside. He's come to be our true head, to take down the old world and put it to the death it deserves. The old order is a matter of life leading to death, life leading to death, and that's where Jesus takes it, right down to the bitter end, right into the grave. But then he defeats sin and Satan and death and the grave, and he rises victorious to turn everything right side up. 
and he just does it by reversing the way of all flesh. The same body that goes into the tomb is the body that rises, renewed, restored, glorified. He's not abandoning his old body and doing something different. He's not abandoning this old world. He's renewing it. As creation's true savior, he's redeeming it all. Just as the king was raised to resurrection glory, so his kingdom will be restored and glorified. And for those in Christ, he carries us with him through the deepest valley of dark death into physical, bodily, immortal, feasting joy. So we can say with Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 55, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? We come to this table in anticipation of that great wedding day, that glorious feast. That's what Advent is all about, looking forward to the coming of our gracious, victorious Savior King. If that's your hope, your unexpected expectation, then you are welcome at, that, at this table. If not, then we would ask that you let the elements uh, depart from you. This is a meal for those who are in Christ and who understand the Lord is salvation. If you don't understand that, then you can see me or one of the elders or Brett uh, after the service. We'd be delighted to talk to you. But if you're a believer, then you are welcome at the table of our unexpected Savior. And as we come to the table, let's reflect, reflect for a moment on what your deepest need is this Advent season. Would you give yourself a second to think through what you need to be saved from? And now join with me at the table of our amazing, gracious, saving rescuer, our Lord who is salvation. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Prepare the bread, and we'll take it together after we pray. Father God, you have given up so much for us, your people, and for the world you love. We confess, Father, we have often betrayed you and aligned ourselves with Satan just as surely as did Adam. And yet we marvel that you have rescued us from our treachery. We can scarcely imagine your love and your grace. Like the Samaritan woman at the well, we are undone. And now we come to the table of our Lord and we offer our humble thanks for your mercy and for your forgiveness. Take and eat. Jesus, help us to see and appreciate what we could never have expected. The love and grace and mercy of our Lord, our God, our King, our Savior. We know we have sentenced you to death, even death on a cross by our sin. 
and yet you went willingly, the bloody sacrifice to save your people once for all. Accept our sorrow for the suffering you endured on our behalf. Accept our deep gratitude for your gifting us your righteousness. And accept our thanksgiving for bringing us back into your kingdom and our true home. Take and drink. Holy Spirit, we acknowledge you are the power of God in us. It is by your work we can even accept the gift offered by God. Would you inhabit us, making our gratitude into service to our God and to others, loving and lifting them as we have been loved and lifted by you? Would you be with us, working in and through us, guiding and guarding us, caring and providing for us, and reminding us moment by moment that we live before the face of God? Amen. And would you rise with me, please, and accept the benediction? This is a poem by St. Patrick of Ireland from the 5th century. May the Lord of our salvation hear our prayer, and may the Holy Spirit make it true of everyone in our hearing this moment. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ where I lie, Christ where I sit, Christ where I arise, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks to me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Christ. May your salvation, Lord, be ever with us. We are blessed beyond understanding by Jesus Christ, the Lord, our salvation. Go forth and be a blessing. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.